This podcast is brought to you by the American Enterprise Institute. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks for listening. Here's our show. What in the hell's going on? What the hell is going on? What the hell is going on? <laughs> I don't know what the hell he's talking about. You don't have to know what the hell is on it. What the hell's the matter with these guys? We don't know what's going on. What the hell's going on? Who in God's name knows what it's all about? Hi. Even though I don't sound like it, my name really is Danielle Pletka. And I'm Mark Deason. Welcome to our podcast, What the Hell is Going On? Mark, what the hell, other than this vile disease that I've got, is going on? Well, that's uh, I've got one, too. I've got a cold. You sound like Marge Simpson. <laughs> Marge Simpson's sister is what I said. Oh, that's I think right. Her name, I think her name is Selma. Marge is that's a That's right, woman. yeah. We are both sick, and we are both uh, having trouble speaking, so we're going to keep this introduction short because we've got a great guest. We've got Senator Tom Cotton joining us to talk about his new book. But one of the things I'm excited about with this interview and also with Tom's book is that you know, not a lot of political leaders these days take the time to write a book about foreign policy. It's it's always the redheaded stepchild of the American political debate. And Tom has decided to write an important book about our American leadership in the world, why it's essential, and why so many on the left decry American leadership and don't want America to be a leader on the international stage. And we we have a really fascinating conversation about China, about, uh, about Ukraine, and the broader challenges facing our country. So, you know, Mark's heard me say this before, and I've probably said it before on this podcast as well. You know, uh, everybody says, no, 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 we want to talk about domestic issues that are very close to our hearts, whether it's the cost of your Thanksgiving turkey or it's milk and eggs and gas, it's uh, you know, unemployment, immigration. But the reality is we learned on 9-11, but in other instances as well, is that foreign policy crises, national security crises can up and everything. And we are truly at one of the more dangerous moments in history. We have a war going on between a nuclear power and a non-nuclear power. We have communist China rising and actively threatening not just Taiwan, but other targets as well. We've got demonstrations going on in Iran, and they're moving even more quickly toward a nuclear weapon. And those are just a few. I left out North Korea. I left out the historic decline of Europe. I left out the spread of Al-Qaeda in Africa. I guess they didn't technically leave anything out, did I? I just put that all in there. But it's, <laughs> it's a, And we have an extraordinarily weak president and, frankly, a big divide in the Republican Party about what to do on national security. And a declining defense budget, because the only area of government spending that the Democrats don't embrace is defense spending. And the defense budget is declining because of inflation that the the Biden administration has unleashed. It's not even keeping up with inflation, which means it's a net decline in defense spending. At at the very time that Joe Biden is uh, promising to defend Taiwan, uh, you know, four times before being walked back by his staff repeatedly publicly. But one gets the sense that he's serious about it. We don't have the we don't have the capability to follow those words through <laughs> and defend the Taiwan Strait. We don't have the missiles in the uh, that we can even deploy in Asia to deter China from crossing the Taiwan Strait. So we're talking big, but we don't have the stick to back it up. So not only are we having all these crises out there and many flashpoints that could rise up, but we don't have the military capabilities we need to execute American foreign policy. 
Right. And one of the things that I say to Senator Cotton, to Tom is, and this is something you and I have talked about, you know, we need leadership. You know, I don't believe that the Biden administration is doing enough to support Ukraine, but even the the diminished support and the diminished pace of support for Ukraine requires sustenance. President has talked twice about the threat of Russia, both times in campaign events when he said Armageddon, when Russia was threatening to use tactical nuclear weapons against the Ukrainians, and in another instance when he was talking about the same thing. What is the Oval Office for? What is his teleprompter for? Get out and give a speech to the American people, laying out why this is so important. I don't get why he hasn't. The reality is that he needs to for his own base, but he needs to for all Americans. This is a fight worth winning. And yet the president spends all of his time, you know, talking about silly stuff, frankly. Well, it's worse than that, Danny, because what what does he talk about when he does talk about it? He talks about Ukraine on the campaign trail a lot and uh, during in the fall. And, and what he said was, it's the Putin price hike, all those high prices you're paying, those high gas prices you're paying, it's because of that war in Ukraine. You know, that's his political protection against to say, I'm not to blame for high gas prices. I'm not to blame for high energy prices. I'm not to blame for high grocery prices. But what does it do? People look and say, boy, you know, we maybe we shouldn't be, uh, you know, supporting Ukraine because uh, that's why my gas prices are up. So even he, not only does he not make the case for why what we're doing in Ukraine is important, he under, he undermines public support by blaming the worst things that people are going through on Ukraine rather than taking responsibility for his role in those things. It's not just negligence, it's it's malfeasance. So let's just take two seconds before we turn to our interview and talk a little bit about this divide in the Republican Party. I, I do think, as I've said you know, 98 times in the last year, that the influence of the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the, the Rand Pauls is limited, but it's growing. Yeah, uh, it, it's not growing as much as it might have. A lot of those, dare I call them dimwits, who were up for the Republican races in the House and Senate actually lost. So the caucus is actually growing people who are not as extreme on, you know, not one more penny for Ukraine. But it's still a problem. I mean, what are we supposed to do about that, Mark? Well, the irony is, is that the lesson of the election was that those extremists and cranks are the ones who lost elections in a lot of these races. And the voters sent a very clear message that we want forward-looking, mainstream Republicans who are focused on solving problems as opposed to electoral grievance and, and sort of radicalism and all the rest of it. But the irony is, is that because the GOP minority in the House is so small, they're actually empowered in the House. To become Speaker, Kevin McCarthy needs Marjorie Taylor Greene and her vote and the Freedom Caucus vote. And so the irony is, is that they were repudiated at the ballot box, but they're now in the catbird seat when it comes to, uh, you know, the leadership of, of Congress. And so I worry that, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to try and get Kevin McCarthy to buy into this cut, no more money for Ukraine as a price for getting the speakership. And unfortunately, the good guys in the Republican Congress don't play hardball in the same way. I don't know if there's anybody going to Kevin McCarthy and saying, hey, by the way, if you don't promise to continue aid to Ukraine, I'm going to not vote for you for speaker because our guys don't do that kind of thing. But I, I worry that they're actually strengthened because the minority is so small. 
Yeah, uh, right. A complete fiasco in every sense, including strategically for a strong America and a better national defense. So with that hearty condemnation, we should bring on our guest. I think Tom Cotton is a name that is familiar to each and every one of our listeners. He's the U.S. Senator for Arkansas. I have to tell everybody this story. I don't think I've told on the podcast, but it probably won't go to my political acuity. Uh, Tom was uh, a member of the House and he was thinking about running for Senate. And uh, and I told him not to run. <laughs> and after and he ignored me intelligently. And after he won, <laughs> I congratulated him. And he said, Danny, you were the only person who told me not to run. And I ignored you. And I said, well, you did the right thing, dude. So he is actually the senator from Arkansas. But prior to that, he served in Iraq with the 101st Airborne. He served in Afghanistan with a provincial reconstruction team. He was with the third ID, the old guard at Arlington National Cemetery. He won the Bronze Star. He's on Senate Intelligence, Armed Services, and Judiciary. He's married to a lovely woman, Anna. And they have two absolutely adorable little boys, he is the author, last but not least, of a new book, which is what we're talking about today. Only the Strong, Reversing the Left Slot to Sabotage American Power. Here's our interview. Well, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Danny. It's great to be on with you. So we're super excited about the fact that not only have you written a book, but you wrote a book about foreign policy, which is just awesome because there are not enough books written about foreign policy. Tell us about the book and why you wrote it. Yeah, so uh, Only the Strong, Reversing the Left's Plot to Sabotage America, kind of came together conceptually for me uh, in August of 2021 as the final troops were leaving Afghanistan. I heard from so many Arkansans um, who were asking questions like, how, how could this happen? Like, how did it get to this point? How did we lose to a band of medieval savages? And it kind of reflected some of the questions I was hearing more broadly how did America get to this point? Why don't we win anymore? Why are we seem to have this sense of decline? And uh, I wanted to write only the strong to answer those questions and, and really to kind of take a step back from this or that failure of Democrats in Washington, whether it was the fiasco in Afghanistan or our wide open Southern border, you know, very high gas prices we had last summer and put it in, historical and philosophical context. Uh, and the story I tell in Only the Strong goes back 100 years, that the sense of decline Americans have is not wrong, nor is it just an accident or bad luck that these things happen when people like Barack Obama and Joe Biden are president. It's because the progressive left, back to Woodrow Wilson, have been deeply ambivalent about America and therefore doubtful about American power. Uh, they're not necessarily anti-American, though plenty progressives are, um, but they do believe that the exercise of American power at home and abroad is more likely to bring war and arrogance and oppression than it is to bring safety, prosperity, and freedom. So thank you from me as well. We're so <laughs> delighted that we have you on. And as Mark rightly said, so delighted you wrote a book on foreign policy. It doesn't come first for everybody, even when it should. So that is brilliant. I want to ask you a little bit about something that Mark and I have talked about a lot that really worries us. And that is the declining support, not among Democrats, but among Republicans, for example, for supporting Ukraine against Russia. How do we understand that? And how do you talk about this sort of challenge and contextualize it in the book? So I write some about Ukraine. Obviously, we haven't 
finish the chapter on the uh, war in Ukraine and may not for some time. So I, I couldn't write about the conclusion of it. But I, I would put it uh, in the broader critique of progressives, because remember, it's not only the Democratic Party that reflects the progressive mindset. In some ways, Teddy Roosevelt, especially in his campaign in 1912, who tried to be more progressive than Woodrow Wilson even, um, when progressivism met the world, as you saw with Woodrow Wilson in World War I, it influenced very heavily by German historicism, you know, philosophers like Kant and Hegel. There's this sense among progressives that defending America's national interest is somehow, you know, grubby or, um, you know, grimy. It's beneath our dignity and that what we really need to do is go to war on behalf of abstractions or to improve the economic, social and political well-being of other peoples, not defend our own national interest. And you still see some of that today. You know, when you hear politicians on either side of the aisle talking about being on the right side of history or the arc of history, that's very much the progressive influence. You know, our founding fathers would have said history doesn't have an arc. Um, it only has men and women who make choices uh, in the moment uh, about what's going to happen. And that shapes history for good or for ill. One reason why I think some of our voters uh, have doubts about Joe Biden's leadership in Ukraine is he does talk about it oftentimes in these very abstract terms um, about the fight between democracy and authoritarianism, for instance, which don't get me wrong. There's an obvious good side and bad side there, but there are certain kinds of authoritarians, as Gene Kirkpatrick reminded us, that are our side uh, and not on our side. Or he's talking about you know, removing Vladimir Putin from office that he can't be allowed to stay. Again, don't get me wrong. It would probably be better for Russia, probably better for the world if Vladimir Putin was gone. But the idea that America is going to be able to remove the Russian president uh, who has the world's largest nuclear arsenal is, I would suggest, somewhat grandiose, as opposed to focusing, as I explained, in only the strong on what our founders did and what Ronald Reagan uh, did on our vital national security interest, our, our concrete interest around the world. And I think most Americans um, understand just as a matter of basic common sense and also historical lessons going back to the 1930s, that an aggressive war of invasion, especially by a large country against a smaller neighboring country, is inherently dangerous to America. You saw this in the early 1990s, for instance, when public opinion uh, very much supported George Bush's effort to eject Saddam Hussein from Kuwait uh, did not support an effort to intervene in civil wars uh, in the Balkans. Unlike, say, Joe Biden, who was calling for deploying troops into the Balkans at the time. Um, so the, some of the way Joe Biden has talked about the war in Ukraine, I think, has kind of gotten the anti-progressive hackles up of some of our voters and, and not incorrectly. The way I always try to focus on it is on those concrete core interest to allow Russia to reconstitute the Russian empire, which has always been Vladimir Putin's long-term objective. And Ukraine is the most vital part of Vladimir Putin's plan would inherently endanger America's interests. It would allow Russia to corner more of the geopolitical map in Europe. It would embolden adversaries like Xi Jinping in China to go for the jugular in a similar way in Taiwan, where our interests are even more greatly implicated. Um, it would call into question America's credibility in all regions of the world, in all aspects of the security order that underwrites 
our safety and our prosperity and our freedom. And in my experience, especially on the campaign trail uh, this fall, I can tell you guys, um, I, I found mostly broad support uh, among our voters for continuing to support Ukraine. They wish Europe would do a little more, especially when it comes to financial and economic and humanitarian aid, but a pretty common sense understanding that America is the main provider of military aid, given our defense industry capabilities. So, you know, you talk a lot about how uh, the Democrats, when they you have a whole section on the trouble we get into when Democrats act tough, and you talked about how Kennedy uh, drew us into Vietnam. And then after after the Vietnam War, Ronald Reagan came into power. And as you point out in the book, he actually deployed U.S. military forces less than almost any other president had. But he came up with the Reagan doctrine after Vietnam, because after Vietnam, there were very few people who were there wasn't an appetite in this country for sending tens of thousands of U.S. forces around the world to fight our enemies. But we needed to confront Soviet communism. So he started providing support for freedom fighters around the world in Angola and South Asia and Nicaragua. And. It was the Democrats who were opposing contra aid. It was the Ted Kennedys of the world. And yet now it seems like we've got, you know, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene in our party who went at a Trump rally and said, if Republicans win, not one more dime for Ukraine. It's like, why we've got Republicans channeling their inner Ted Kennedy. Uh, huh. they're, they're doing the same thing as, uh, as, you know, Ted Kennedy opposing contra aid, opposing aid to Ukraine. How do we deal with this, you know, minority within the Republican Party, which seems to have disproportionate influence in the new Congress? Well, let's not forget that Joe Biden was one of those Democrats as well. Yep. In the, in the 1980s. <laughs> True. Uh, even then, Joe Biden if he was, knew he was if he knew that he was employing the Reagan doctrine, he'd probably stop. Exactly. Even then, uh, Joe Biden was uh, denying that we were in a Cold War against Soviet Russia, just as he denies today that we're in a Cold War with uh, China, saying that Reagan was going to start a Cold War. Um, I think the examples of Reagan are, are very astute. You know, Reagan called Vietnam a noble cause um, in 1980 on the campaign trail. I agree with that, and only the strong. Uh, it was uh, in our vital national security interest, uh, not necessarily to end up with half a million troops there, but to support the South Vietnamese government um, as a bulwark um, against uh, encroaching communism in Southeast Asia. And of course, Kennedy, through his feckless management of what should have been a Vietnam War, um, drew America in, and then LBJ made his fight with one hand tied behind her back until Nixon won in 68 and basically achieved America's security objectives by the end of his first term. Um, Reagan was dealing with public opinion by the time he became president that was still somewhat hesitant about those kind of commitments. But the targeted and discriminated application of military force is a consistent theme of Ronald Reagan's presidency. Sometimes it was entirely covert and driven by our intelligence agencies like in Afghanistan. I'd make another contrast here with Biden on Ukraine. You know, Biden said that we would not put troops, American troops into Ukraine. I don't disagree with that statement. Uh, I, I would not have made it public, nor would, because it simply uh, makes Vladimir's war, Putin's war planning uh, easier. Ronald Reagan never considered tr putting troops in Afghanistan, but he didn't say that. He didn't even talk about what we were doing in Afghanistan. Another example of uh, the discriminate application of military forces in Grenada. Uh, in Grenada, it wasn't covert. It wasn't simply military. It was an outright invasion and regime change. Why? Not just because it was a, a communist takeover, to be more precise, a bloodthirsty communist taking over from less bloodthirsty communists, but because Grenada could have been the final link in a series of air bases connecting the Southern Soviet Union with Cuba. Uh, so it was absolutely in our vital national interest uh, that we not allow Grenada to fall into enemy hands. In contrast, again, to what Joe Biden was doing then and what he does now, 
Um, as far as what some Republicans say about the aid that we send to Ukraine, I, mean, I would suggest there there actually are, as you, as you said, Mark, a minority voice. They they may have an outsized voice uh, through certain uh, medium. Uh, but if you just look at the votes we've had in Congress so far, and also some of the election results, you'll see that you know campaigning against um, you know the cutoff of aid to Ukraine was not something that was foremost on the minds of America's voters to include Republican voters. That was actually quite reassuring, to be honest with you. I think we talked a lot about that in the aftermath of the election. Another area where your book is important, your perspective and your leadership are hugely important, is on defense spending. And this is an area where, yes, there are divides in the Republican caucus, but among the Democrats, and particularly, I think, beginning in the Obama administration, we just see you know, the decline of the Defense Department as uh, an organization dedicated to the security of the homeland and our alliances overseas and more dedicated to being, you know, a social welfare organization that occasionally engages in military exercises. You have a, you know, a unique perspective. Uh, your service is, is something that, that you know, you are rightly proud of and thank you for it. What do we say? How do we how do we fix this? Yeah, well, thank you for that, Danny. It is almost like birds flying south for the winter. It just is democratic instinct when they take office to slash the defense budget. And this is true of even so-called strong or tough Democrats like FDR, Harry Truman. Um, I mean, defense, <laughs> defense spending uh, leading up to the Korean War had reached historic lows. And even a month before the war started, Truman was proposing even further cuts, in part, as I write, not only the strong, because he he and other Democrats view the military as just one more budget kitty, one more place to cut money from programs they don't care for and put it into welfare spending they do want. Um, this is the exact opposite of how we should view the budget, it's the exact opposite of how Ronald Reagan described it uh, in an important Oval Office speech in one of his early battles with the Democrats in Congress to fund his defense buildup. You know, when it comes to defense spending, we can't let the budget drive our strategy. Our strategy has to be based on the threats we face abroad. And then you have to fund the budget. So these people that say, uh, well, we could cut the defense budget by 1% or by 5% just across the board. It's not like, say, you know, whether or not you can cut taxes by 1% or cut taxes by 3% just based on fiscal needs. You have to identify where you can accept risk in your strategy and why it's reasonable to accept it. Otherwise, you have to fund the budget that matches your strategy. And that means that the defense budget should come first and foremost. It's not the most important thing that government does, but is the first and most fundamental thing that government does because uh, security in a dangerous world underwrites everything else that we do at home to provide for freedom and prosperity for the American people. It's gotten particularly bad since uh, the Soviet Union collapsed. It reached points um, in Bill Clinton's era that were as low as it had been uh, going back beyond Jimmy Carter all the way to Truman. With Barack Obama, you saw a, a, a small blip that funded the uh, surge in Afghanistan, but then ruthless cutting, especially in his second term. Um, this is beyond even what Jimmy Carter did, uh, you know, when uh, many soldiers were living on food stamps. But after President Carter experienced something of a Ennis Horribilis in uh, 1979, with uh, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan 
and the Shah falling to the Ayatollahs in Iran and Soviet and Cuban adventurism all over the third world, he at least, after being mugged by reality, proposed a slightly larger budget in 1980. Joe Biden came into office and you had the collapse of Afghanistan and the invasion of Ukraine. So Joe Biden's been mugged by reality as well, but he refuses to press charges. Uh, He keeps spending (laughs) less on defense than any other department. Now, fortunately, last year, the Congress was able to increase the defense budget somewhat, though not enough. I, I think we will again in the months ahead, but over the long term, to meet the threats that we face, especially the threat from a rapidly arming uh, communist China, we need to have something like you know three to five percent real growth in our defense budget every single year um, to get back to where we were at least in the middle of the Reagan buildup in the four and a half to five percent uh, range of our total economy, not you know where we were at the end of Obama and where we would trend if Joe Biden had his way, which is below 3% of our total economy. You gave me the perfect segue. Uh, Mark and I hosted two of our colleagues, uh, Hal Branson and Michael Beckley, um, who have a a new book out called Danger Zone, uh, The Coming Conflict with China. And one of the things that that, that they said when we asked them was, you know, Americans tend to think of ourselves sort of as frozen in, in 1941, you know, if we're attacked, we can step up, we can manage. They contradicted that and said, we no longer have the industrial base to actually step up if we're attacked. But it's worse, we're not really positioned to win a conflict with the Chinese. I mean, how do you see that challenge? I think it's a real challenge. And I think they're on to something there. You see this in the appallingly low rates of production for relatively simple munitions uh, in the war in Ukraine. Now, don't get me wrong, a Javelin anti-tank missile is a lot more advanced than bazookas of yesteryear, but it's not an aircraft carrier. It's not a stealth bomber. These are things that the American worker should be able to produce in mass quantities very rapidly, but they can't. Um, I can't get into the exact details and rates of production because some of those details are classified, but I can tell you it's woefully inadequate. Um, and if we were attacked today, I would be worried, uh, or if say China went for the jugular in Taiwan, I would be worried about America's um, munition stockpiles. That's why it's so urgent that we rapidly increase capacity in our defense space. Something I've argued now for some years, something I think the Ukraine war has brought home the necessity to many members of Congress, and hopefully we can make some progress in these coming months as we pass a new defense budget. A second thing I'd say that we need to focus on is more of the kind of asymmetric weapons that Ukraine has shown so uh, successfully can be used against Russia, that China has been building to counteract our traditional advantage in, say, aircraft carriers with its long-range anti-ship missiles, well, we can do the same thing as well. And the Department of Defense needs to be more innovative. It needs to be more willing to use commercial off-the-shelf technology and, and less beholden to massive, you know, single vendor multi-decade, trillion-dollar weapon programs. Don't get me wrong, those are important programs like the F-35. You know, pilots love it, but the contract and the performance has been kind of a debacle going back to when I was in high school. Um, There's a lot of other things that we can arm up with in the Western Pacific, both for our own forces uh, and Taiwan, that don't take 30 years and don't cost a trillion dollars, but can be pretty devastating towards the PLA uh, and their Air Force and Navy. Talk to us a little bit about China. So you you tell a story about how when you were 
I don't know if it was when you first elected to Congress or when you became a senator, but Asa Hutchison tried to get you to meet with the Chinese consulate in Houston and you refused to do it. And you talk a little bit about how the, well, you talk a great deal in the book about how the West's economic engagement with China, permanent normal trade relations, and all the rest of it have been just absolutely disastrous to our national security. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I think China is probably the gravest threat our nation has ever faced. We've never faced something quite like this country with an economy almost as large as ours, therefore with a military capable of being as large as ours um, and deeply intertwined with our own economy. You know, the Soviet Russia's economy was always much smaller than the American economy and the Warsaw Pact Bloc's combined economy was always much smaller than the Western world's economy. And we just didn't have much trade with Soviet Russia. Um, that's just not the case uh, with China. And uh, China's influence in our society is pervasive. Um, I call it the China lobby, and I go on at some length and only the strong about it because I, I want to highlight it to the American people so they're aware of these kind of vulnerabilities. Um, I don't mean to imply that that people are actively supporting and flacking for the uh, Chinese Communist Party. Um, though some but, are. <laughs> though some are, but but more commonly, it's it's people who have allowed themselves to become beholden to or dependent upon China in some way that it is hurtful to America's interest. I, I can tell you, you know, during the Trump era, when Trump was negotiating trade deals with China, it was not uncommon to hear from small and medium-sized manufacturing companies in Arkansas who were owned by red-blooded, patriotic Americans, a little worried that Trump was being too tough on China because they'd outsourced so much of their production to China. The story about Asa Hutchinson uh, as governor of Arkansas, encouraging me to, to meet with the consul general of uh, China from Houston, insistently encouraging me to do so. And, and I just finally said, you know, I, when I'm in Arkansas, my focus is to be with Arkansans, not with Chinese diplomats. You know, he can come to Washington to see me. He said, well, he can't do that because that's the ambassador's turf. And I said, well, the ambassador can come meet me if he wants to. I'm not sure I want to meet with him, but he can at least put in a request. And then he said, well, you know, it's the it's the uh, consul, consulate in Houston that manages foreign direct investment into Arkansas. And, and again, it's just an example. This happens in all 50 states. State and local officials are trying to um, get Chinese investments into their economy and create jobs. And they're worried that their senators and congressmen might be too tough on Taiwan or Hong Kong or genocide against the Uyghur people in Northwest China or TikTok or what have you. I mean, look at the influence of uh, Chinese money and Chinese market access on Hollywood. It's been over a decade since there was a Chinese villain in the movie. That's because all these Hollywood studios don't just want Chinese money to help fund their movies, but they want access to Chinese theaters. Or consider the fact that every major news network in America, except for Fox, is owned by or affiliated with one of those Hollywood studios. Uh, does that call into question their objectivity on China? I'd have to say it probably does at the corporate level. Um, I, I've even heard stories of, you know, small boarding schools that, um, you know, depend on full freight tuition paying Chinese nationals uh, floating the school's budget. Just think about the influence that has not just on the headmaster on student visas, but on that local community and their mayor and their county executive uh, going to Washington to lobby their congressmen say, not be too tough uh, on the persecution of Christians in China because, you know, our local economy depends on all those Chinese nationals coming to our 
to our school each year. Uh, this is what I mean by the China lobby. The influence is pervasive throughout our country, something far more than Soviet Russia ever had. What's the solution to that? So I think we have to expose it uh, in as uh, often as we can to show how Chinese influence could be manipulating our public policy, not just in Washington, but at the state and local level as well. I also think we need to try to disentangle our economy in certain critical strategic sectors as well. And that's not just like, you know, high tech sectors of our economy, like producing and manufacturing the rare earth elements necessary for all modern electronics, although we need to do that. It's also low tech stuff like basic pharmaceutical ingredients or medical equipment, things that America's health and prosperity are dependent upon should not be sold or even limited source from China. You know, we're in the holiday season now. And when you go to Walmart, almost every Christmas tree or every decoration you see, or for most, in addition to that, for that matter, most children's toys are going to be made in China. Um, I wish they were made elsewhere. I wish they were made in America and creating jobs here. It's not really going to be a threat to our national security, though, if people buy fake Christmas trees in from China. It is a threat to our national security if Americans don't have access to basic life-saving medication like penicillin and heparin because it's all made in China and China decides to cut it off because they don't like our policy towards Taiwan. Yeah, no, we've talked a lot about that during the pandemic and, and you're absolutely right. These are true single points of failure the United States has with China and it is amazing that we haven't remedied them. Actually, you reminded me when you talked about Christmas shopping, one of my big bugaboos is that when you buy stuff on Walmart's website or you buy stuff on Amazon, you can't find out where it was made. And I think a lot of Americans would like to be able to make the choice to not buy things that were made in China on their in their everyday life. And we, we it's very hard to do that. But that's just my little my little commercial plug for something I wish we would do. Tell me uh, about this. You voted against the CHIPS Act with a lot of Republicans on the House and the Senate side. This is the the bill to support bringing chip manufacturing back to the United States because we are so far behind the Taiwanese, yes, but also the Chinese. I understand that that's an industrial policy issue. And tell tell us what the right thing to do is and why you voted against it. So a couple of reasons of that specific legislation, Danny, and I did support the goals of many of the sponsors in principle, and I had some predecessor legislation, especially when it came to semiconductors. Um, it is vitally important for our prosperity and our security that we not be dependent on semiconductors made in China. Now, China tends to only make lower-end semiconductors, but you know the American people need semiconductors that are in things like refrigerators or automobiles for the basic needs of modern life, and we shouldn't be dependent on China for those. They don't make the higher-end semiconductors. We've been so far somewhat successful of depriving them of that technology, what they need in terms of design um, or uh, tools to make those semiconductors. Um, as it happens, though, the world's most advanced chips are made at the largest scale in Taiwan. That is a very dangerous situation that the most vital semiconductors are made on an island against which uh, communist China has irredentist claims going back decades and thousands of missiles aimed at. We need to get that production not necessarily off of Taiwan. I understand Taiwan wouldn't like that, but we need to get it duplicated hopefully in the United States, certainly at least out of missile range of mainland China. And that might take something that looks 
akin to certain aspects of industrial policy, which I know many, uh, you know, orthodox libertarians might oppose. But as I write in Only the Strong, sometimes orthodox libertarian thinking, vital and helpful though it is in domestic debates about taxes and regulation, breaks down in a world of borders and governments. Um, And if China is going to engage in unfair trade practices to distort the market, in its favor, uh, not just for economic reasons, but for security reasons, then we have to look at our security needs as well. So whether it's taking a relaxed attitude on semiconductor manufacturing compared to most other manufacturing when it comes to environmental requirements for permitting and uh, other such bureaucratic red tape, providing tax incentives, maybe even providing direct grants to them, I think we need to take that very seriously, just like we do, for instance, for you know basic pharmaceutical ingredients or medical equipment. Um, a couple of reservations I had about that specific bill, though, as it evolved. One, as is often the case when uh, one's not in charge of the Congress, the Democrats had put a lot of their other priorities in it. Priorities that, in my opinion, would actually undercut some of the bills, you know, like more spending on green or so-called clean energy, which is China's dominant source of energy production. Not energy consumption, but energy production uh, that would further hamstring America's dominant source of energy production Uh, which is fossil fuels. Second, as it relates to that spending itself, um, a lot of that spending, unfortunately, was going to go to research institutes, colleges, and universities that I'm afraid don't yet have adequate security controls uh, in place for uh, their research and for the innovation that they develop. So I, I hate to see American tax dollars spent on a worthy purpose, only to have the fruits of that spending taken out the back door by Chinese spies, as is the case in many institutions across America. Chinese economic espionage is pervasive. You know, here in Arkansas, we've had a University of Arkansas professor plead guilty uh, to economic espionage, just like Harvard has in Massachusetts, the head of their biochemistry department. Uh, So I'm very worried about the inadequate security controls in that specific legislation. But again, the the goals I said I, I, I tend to share that there's certain industries that we need to be willing uh, to take steps to support getting manufacturing out of China or out of Taiwan and back to the United States, or at least to where we can depend on it from friendly nations. Let's talk about the uh, the other threat, uh, major threat to the United States, is, which is uh, Iran and the possibility of a nuclear Iran. You were you were a critic of the uh, Iran nuclear deal. In fact, you wrote a letter to Iran's mullahs explaining Congress's role in advice and consent that got a lot of uh, caused a lot of controversy. I don't know if you know this, but when Danny and I worked for Jesse Helms on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Bill Clinton was trying to negotiate in his last year a uh, an ABM treaty, a new ABM treaty. And Helms published an op-ed in his vestia the day Clinton arrived in Moscow saying any treaty he negotiates is dead on arrival in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. So (laughs) you didn't quite go that far. Uh, But tell us why you wrote that letter and why is Joe Biden so desperate to get in this Iran deal rather than helping the Iranian people who seem to be rising up in in the biggest uprising against their rulers since 1979? Uh, I was not aware of that story with Jesse Helms. It only further enhances my respect for the great Jesse Helms. <laughs> so that, that letter should not have been controversial. It only stated basic principles of constitutional law um, that you know the Senate has to ratify a treaty for uh, or any international agreement for it to be enduring, and that the Senate serves six-year terms with no term limits, and presidents serve four-year terms with term limits, uh, which is to say, when you combine those two principles, that future Senates could, just like a future president did, uh, withdraw from that agreement between Barack Obama and the Ayatollahs. 
But, you know, I, I got asked a lot in those days, Mark, you know, why why doesn't Obama get a better deal? You know, why, why is he capitulating on all these issues? Um, why doesn't he use, you know, crazy Republicans like you in the Congress to drive a harder bargain? Um, the way you could use someone like Jesse Helms to drive a harder bargain. And as I explained in Only the Strong, the simple answer is he didn't want a better deal. He didn't view uh, the nuclear deal with Iran as simply on its own terms, a nuclear arms control agreement by which you could uh, stop Iran's progress towards a nuclear weapon. Obviously, it didn't do that. It, it simply you know, put some temporary restraints at best on their nuclear program. And as Benjamin Netanyahu say, it used to pay, it would pave the way to Iran getting a nuclear weapon to say nothing of all the other aspects of it, you know, lifting the conventional arms embargo or giving Iran hundreds of billions of dollars of sanction relief. But that was not the way President Obama viewed the nuclear deal. He viewed it as one component, as a broader rapprochement with Iran, because he thought America was responsible for decades of tension with Iran. I, I lay out this case in Only the Strong. There's no way to see Barack Obama's Iran policy as other than a kind of blame America first attempt to atone for America's sins, apologize to the Ayatollahs to pull in our horns and hopefully restore normal relations with this nation that deserved them. Um, I mean, this goes back to Obama's view of what happened in 1953 in Iran. He deeply and wrongly believes that America overthrew the democratically elected leader of Iran, as he puts it so often, as he wrote in his second memoir, as he said in campaign speeches in 2008, as he said in his infamous Cairo speech in 2009, as he wrote in his most recent third memoir. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Mohammed Mossadegh was not democratically elected. America did not overthrow him. In fact, he could be uh, said to have launched a coup against the Shah since the Shah removed him from office, as he had the right to do, and he refused to leave office. If anything, it were the Ayatollahs, the forerunners among the clerisy in, in Iran that was most influential in removing the secular and left-leaning Mossadegh. And then Obama blamed America for the next 25 years for supporting the Shah, now, don't get me wrong. The Shah is no one's idea of a good liberal Democrat. Um, no one's going to mistake him or his government for the little sisters of the poor. But he was pro-American uh, and he was a source uh, of American power and alliances uh, in the Middle East. And when uh, he was overthrown, in part because Jimmy Carter withdrew support from him in 1978, 1979, what happened? As is almost always the case when Democrats uh, work to overthrow uh, pro-American government. We got a government that was anti-American and that was even worse to its own people. But that's not the way Obama saw it. Obama viewed uh, our history with Iran as uh, the source of all the tensions we have, that the Ayatollahs were simply misunderstood. And if he would extend a hand of friendship and give them what they wanted, then they would see that America had finally turned the page from their old benighted ways by electing Barack Obama and that we could have a rapprochement between our two nations, which would further Barack Obama's uh, goal of withdrawing from the Middle East. That's why he didn't drive a harder bargain. That's why he uh, gave away the store. And that's why he turned it into such a political hot potato to the extent that he kind of superimposed America's domestic politics on the Middle East. You know, it, if you were an opponent of his nuclear deal, as was Benjamin Netanyahu, as was Mohammed bin Salman and his father, 
as was Mohammed bin Zayed and the United Arab Emirates, you were essentially wearing a red jersey. And remember, in 2015, you know, they were threatening Democrats in Congress with primary contests the next year if they voted against the nuclear deal. Uh, so Joe Biden is pursuing it now, not because I, I think he has that kind of blame America first, deeply worked out ideological view of the matter, but because it's just become a kind of point of partisan pride for the Democrats, um, that this is something that is good and righteous and the terrible Republicans and the even worse Donald Trump, along with Israel and our Arab friends in the Middle East oppose, and therefore we have to support it come hell or high water. So let me ask you about Iran. You know, the Obama administration and the Biden administration have given us a lot of negative things to say about U.S. policy toward Iran. But Mark mentioned, you know, we are looking at the most serious and prolonged sustained demonstrations. Now, on the day that we're recording this, I don't know if you saw, Tom, or you, Mark, actually, that the Iranian national team uh, at the at the yeah. uh, World Cup in Qatar did not sing the national anthem of Iran when it was played. I mean, that's, that is courage and solidarity. What do you think the United States should be doing as an Iran policy, both on the nuclear, but also on domestic governance front? Well, Danny, as, as I write now, this strong, this is kind of a replay of what happened in 2009 during the Green Revolution protests. Barack Obama appeared to stand idly by uh, without supporting the protesters' aims, without condemning the brutality against them, without taking any concrete action against the regime. At the time, it was perceived by some as an inexperienced president being caught flat-footed, being somewhat naive about the Ayatollah's intentions. Um, and again, I, I want to dissent from that line of thinking on the right. Barack Obama knew exactly what he was doing in the summer of 2009, as he did for eight years with Iran. He didn't get taken to the cleaners. He wasn't inexperienced in bargaining at the Persian Bazaar. He ruthlessly pursued his own ideological goals of apologizing for America's sins against Iran. I know that the president, the former president, Barack Obama, recently said that he regrets not having been more outspoken in the summer of 2009. Uh, I don't believe that for a minute. He knew exactly what he was doing at the time. Now he simply wants to escape the bad judgment that people have about his lack of response in 2009, but he was doing exactly what he intended, which was letting nothing get in the way of his efforts uh, to apologize for America's sins against Iran. And, and I think Joe Biden's very meager response, that, I mean, somewhat stronger than um, Barack Obama, largely meager, is similar. He, he still wants to pursue this project of reentering the nuclear deal with Iran and trying to you know, normalize them as a nation. And he's not going to let, you know, a few hundred thousand protesters get in his way. What we should do is what Ronald Reagan would have done, uh, what he always did in places like, say, Poland, which is stand with the forces of freedom to support them rhetorically, to let them know we support them, to take action such as we can that will help protect them, um, not you know, necessarily military action, but sanctions uh, against regime leaders who are engaged in this kind of brutality, um, perhaps action at the United Nations to force countries like China and Russia on the defensive, standing up to Iran, bringing pressure to bear on our European partners um, who are very sensitive to uh, the regime's attacks on protesters and repression of women, which kind of kicked off this latest round of protest to do things like walking away from the nuclear deal. Obviously, we should walk away from the nuclear deal itself. There are a whole suite of actions we could take to make it clear to the Iranian people that we support their aspirations uh, and that we oppose their government's brutal crackdown.
So exit question for me. In 1988, when George H.W. Bush was running for president, nobody asked him about Iraq. And within months after his election, we were at war in the Persian Gulf. Uh, in 2000, no one asked George W. Bush about Al-Qaeda, but within months, the 9-11 attacks happened and we had the, the wars in the Middle East that you served so ably in. In 2020, nobody asked Joe Biden about the possibility of a Russian invasion of Ukraine. And here we are. What is the foreign policy issue that you worry the most about that nobody is talking about right now? Well, it depends on who's doing the talking, Mark. It's one thing <laughs> if you know senators and foreign policy experts are talking about it on a podcast. But in terms of, of the public opinion, the, the popular mind, uh, things about which most Americans think, uh, I still think that uh, Taiwan is the single most dangerous flashpoint in the world. I don't remember Donald Trump or uh, Joe Biden being asked about that in uh, the campaign in 2020 either. But just given the unique confluence of circumstances there. Uh, it is the most dangerous flashpoint we face. I think Joe Biden has made it more dangerous, for instance, by stumbling over our traditional policy of strategic ambiguity. I think he was right when he stumbled into the idea that we should explicitly guarantee Taiwan's autonomy uh, with military force, if necessary, should China go for the jugular there. And he and his anonymous White House aides were wrong to immediately walk it back. That created the worst of both worlds. You got provocation without deterrence. But for most Americans, I still don't think it's an issue that's front of mind and that they uh, that many people appreciate just how dangerous a flashpoint it is. That's one reason why I consistently raise it as the world's most dangerous flashpoint. So exit question for me. And um, we've talked a lot about national security, but we just came through a midterm election. Um, one of the things that I, I like a lot about you, and I'm not flattering you to your face because I can't see your face. So there. Um, is is your understanding that to bring the public along, you need leadership and winning is part of being able to lead. But the Republicans did not win in many sense of the word in this in this midterm. If you sort of had to give us thoughts about where you think the party went wrong, what would you say? Well, well first, uh, thank you for that, Danny. Second, uh, one of the reasons I wrote Only the Strong is I kind of wanted to lay out how we got to where we are, why Americans have this sense of decline, and what we can do to restore some of the basic pillars of American national power, whether it's a stronger military or energy independence, a strong network of allies and partners around the world or so forth. Um, I have found from my first campaign that, that foreign policy is just different from domestic policy. Most people have very strong opinions about domestic policy, and it can be hard to argue them out of it. Um, you know, the kind of questions I got as a first time candidate in 2012 about domestic policy tended to be closed and like cross-examination questions like you're not going to raise taxes, are you? Or you're not going to vote for gun control, are you? The kind of questions I got even as a first time candidate, um, I was still known as a veteran uh, about the world and I got a lot of them were much more open ended kind of direct examination questions like what should we do about Syria? You know, what happened in Libya? Uh, because most Americans, uh, unlike uh, in domestic policy, don't live foreign policy. And even those who do, even those who are like deep experts on China may not know the first thing about Latin America. So there's just a lot more opportunity for political leadership uh, when it comes to foreign policy. That's been my experience for the last 10 years in public life. 
what happened in the midterm election? Obviously, a disappointing result in some ways. I mean, we did win the House of Representatives. We did not win the Senate. We would have want, liked to have won both and won by larger margins. I think one consistent theme you see in the results, though, are Republicans uh, who have strong records, clear and forward-looking agendas, uh, and delivered real results for their people tend to do very well. I mean, just look at some of our gubernatorial races uh, with Ron DeSantis in Florida, Brian Kemp in Georgia, Mike DeWine in Ohio, Kim Reynolds in Iowa, Greg Abbott in Texas, all won pretty smashing victories, in some cases record victories, uh, because they did just that. They had delivered positive results and change for their people. They had a clear agenda looking forward to the future. Dwelling on the past, um, simply does not work in elections. Um, even if people are otherwise sympathetic to you, otherwise willing to give the incumbent party the boot, if you're not speaking to their immediate priorities and aspirations, um, you're not giving them much of a reason to vote for you. And we had a few too many candidates who tended to do that. Well, Tom, you've taken yourself out of the running for 2024, which means that the debate, especially on foreign policy, will be impoverished by your absence. But we're so glad to have you here on the podcast. We're so glad you're in the Senate fighting for these values every day. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Danny. I appreciate you both. Thank you very much for being with us. Take care. So, Mark, what do you think? So I think what Tom said at the end about Americans and foreign policy, how uh, when he's campaigning, people have very set opinions on a lot of domestic issues, but on foreign policy, they don't. They're looking for, you know, someone to explain to them what's at stake, what's going on, why does this matter? And it's a leadership test that Tom meets every day in his work in the Senate, but a lot of Republicans don't. And I think that one of the consistent themes of what we've talked about on this podcast, what I talk about in my writing, and you do too, is that Americans are not isolationist. They are reluctant internationalists. They want America to lead on the world stage. They are willing to step up when American leadership is needed. They want us to be a moral leader in the world. They're not looking for dragons to slay, and they don't want to send our troops around the world to die for causes that they don't necessarily support, but they also are willing to sacrifice when it matters. I think the fact that you've got Joe Biden, who has not, as you pointed out in the introduction, has not made the case for why what's happening in Ukraine, what we're doing in Ukraine is important, where you have a lot of isolationist Republicans out there saying, you know, what we're doing is wrong and we should not be wasting money in Ukraine. You still have a majority of Americans, including a majority of Republicans who support it even without the leadership or with bad leadership, they're, they're in the right place. Imagine if we had Republicans and Democrats who are out there actually explaining what was at stake and why it was important. I think Republicans and Democrats alike would be even more supportive of our efforts there. One of the things I really liked about this book was um, some of the historical references, because you know, we have a tendency to talk about everything in the here and now, which is natural. But the reality is that you know, we look back and, of course, the United States defeated the Soviet empire and we won that due to the resolution of America's leaders. But there wasn't beautiful consensus that we all talk about. Oh, once everybody agreed that we needed to defeat the Soviet Union. No, they didn't. Every single... Ronald Reagan said that. Ronald Reagan said that in his farewell address in the 1992 convention where he said, I heard the people at the other at the other convention saying we won the Cold War. Who do they mean by we? <laughs> exactly. And and I think it's it's something worth remembering when the loudmouth isolationist right 
speaks out against American engagement with Ukraine, for example, against a, a shared enemy, the Russians, who represent a serious threat to us, you know, or have they forgotten that, that Russians tried to kill American troops in Syria? When they speak out, they are ranging themselves on the side of the losers in America, the people who didn't want to be stand tall against the Soviet Union, the people who didn't want us to win the Cold War, the people who wanted to accommodate communism in Latin America and in Africa and Asia. And that doesn't get pointed out to them enough. I agree. And by the way, one of the things that uh, when I interviewed President Trump before he left office, one of the things he told me, which uh, very few people know, is he actually gave the order for the U.S. military to kill several hundred Wagner Group mercenaries in Syria. If you consider yourself to be a Trump Republican or a MAGA Republican, even he recognized that what the Russians were doing to American troops in Syria was just absolutely disgraceful. I just find the idea that any, well, we did a whole podcast with Matt Connenny, but that anybody would think that Putin could be an ally, much less that he is not an adversary that we need to face down is just mind boggling to me. Um, and we've got all these Republicans out there who are literally acting like the Democrats did during the Cold War, saying no contra aid, <laughs> you know, let's cut off the Contras who are fighting our enemies for us. You know, there are all these people around the world and in, in Ukraine is the perfect example of it, where they're not asking for Americans to fight and die their war of liberation. They're willing to fight and die their own war of liberation. They just need our help. They just need our weapons. And the idea that we would not support that and not help them in fighting a, you know, decimating the Russian army so that it can't threaten our NATO allies because it doesn't have the capability because the Ukrainians have destroyed it. That just seems like a, a, a two minute decision in the first minutes for coffee. I love that line. <laughs> it's a Rumsfeld line. <laughs> I know, it, but, it's, but it's one of the few really good ones. Hey, well, folks. Many. Oh, yeah, Mark. Blah, blah, blah. Hey, folks. Um, Thanksgiving's coming up. We hope you're going to have a wonderful, peaceful, happy Thanksgiving with family or friends or just you and that turkey. But wherever you are, um, we wish you a, a very, very happy holiday. And we're giving thanks for you for listening to this podcast. Thanks so much. Take care. Take care. Let us know what topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing us at whatthehell at AEI.org. Or you can reach us on Twitter. I'm at D. Pletka. And I'm at Mark Thiessen. That's Mark with a C. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe, share it, comment on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.